Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to the third in our class series called Unity to All Things, referring to Ephesians 1 and God's vision for there to be unity in the heavenlies and the earthlies. All things in heaven and earth brought together in unity in the church under Christ. So this is our vision. And we're thinking about this because we're going through a transition, aren't we? Coming out of COVID and all the restrictions and more and more into being able to actually physically gather together, whether in a home or a garden or a park, wherever we can. We're going into this. And I think it's really important that when God takes us through new territory, new transitions, that we rethink why we do what we do. It seems appropriate to do that right now, to reboot our thinking about what gathering is really all about, and especially Sundays. We've talked about some of those things the last couple of weeks. Today, we're going to focus in on the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper specifically, otherwise called often the Eucharist or the uh, or the Communion. That's what we're going to talk about. Now, first thing to say is, sadly, over Christian history and even today, it's often been a divisive issue. Such a tragedy. Uh, we even see in the first century, in 1 Corinthians 11, which we will come back to a bit later, that the Lord's Supper was providing division in the church, or at least it was one of the fault lines of division in the church. The rich and the poor are not united. Paul says there are divisions among you. To some extent, I believe it. He's talking about when they gather together as the ecclesia, as the gathered people of God. And he says, some of you, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, though they would call it that. He says, uh, when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, verse 21, as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. So you've got the hungry poor people not getting enough food at this Lord's Supper meal. And you've got other rich people not only having enough, having actually too much, indeed even too much alcohol, to the point where in their Lord's Supper communion, unity, one body event, they're getting drunk while others are hungry. And throughout Christian history, we've had divisions over what exactly constitutes the Lord's Supper. Whether you take the classic Catholic uh, perspective or Luther's perspective or Calvin or Zwingli from the period of the Reformers, even to the uh, Churches of Christ, that's our heritage. Should we be taking uh, communion, uh, the wine from one cup or many little tiny cups? Is that OK? Churches have divided over that issue. Should we have one prayer? Or should we have a prayer before the bread and a prayer before the wine, like we see Jesus did? And some people have divided over those, those kinds of things. Also, well, who's, who's supposed to be offering the communion, the bread and the wine? Some traditions will say, well, it has to be a priest, an authorized person. Otherwise, it's not valid. Others would say, well, anybody can, can share the bread and the wine around or and talk about it. Should it be for, for Christians only? Something debated a great deal in the early years of the, uh, uh, the second century, third century, and so on. Is it okay for non-Christians to be there, let alone take it? What about children? So many questions that have often divided people. Indeed, something happened to me recently to remind me of this kind of division. I'm going to put on screen, you'll see this, you'll see the photo if you're watching the video. And if you're not, I'll put the photograph in the, uh, in the show notes. You can look at it. But on screen, you'll see a photograph of something that my wife and I saw when we were on holiday in Somerset recently. And we went to a place called Lights Carey Manor. And Lights Carey Manor was a stately home that had a chapel attached to it. And that chapel was built originally in 1343, a long time ago. And what you're looking at is you're looking at the little slit windows through which the servants in the house were able to watch their masters take communion. 
They weren't allowed in the chapel to take communion. They weren't allowed to take a communion. They were allowed to watch their masters take communion. They were separated from communion. That very word meaning coming together, to, to commune together, to be together, to be a community. They were not a community. They were very much physically separated out, not allowed to be a community and only watch the performance of what happened with the bread and the wine. Uh, these little windows are called a squint. They, they were able to squint at the event of the taking of bread and wine rather than participate. It's tragic, isn't it? So many things about the Lord's Supper often divide when, of course, the Lord's Supper, above all things, is meant to be a unifying issue. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 17, Paul says, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. One body. Why? For we all share in the one loaf. In the one loaf, we're one body. The, 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 the loaf that is Christ and the loaf that is Christ's body, we're together, we're one. The Lord's Supper is meant to bring us together, to feast together on Christ and under Christ. Now, because the Lord's Supper is a very complex issue in some ways and has a long history and, and some of that is about the divisions in, in history, um, I can't do justice to all that in this class. I have a shelf full of books uh, on uh, on the Lord's Supper, but I will give you a few pointers and really more than anything, some things to think about so that we can talk about it in our local church events, services, uh, gatherings, uh, uh, smaller groups, and come up with our own convictions about what is healthy to do regarding the Lord's Supper on a Sunday in particular. What are the right attitudes to have? What should we be thinking about as we prepare to take together the Lord's Supper? So a few things. First of all, Jesus instituted it. We know that from Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, classically. Uh, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So Jesus instituted something and he told them to do it in remembrance of him. In Luke 24, we see him, in a sense, do that for the first time after his resurrection in the New Age, when he see, looks like he's doing some kind of communion, Lord's Supper event with the two on the road from Emmaus. Remember, they stop, and Jesus was at the table, and he takes bread in Luke 24, 13, 31. He gave thanks, he break, broke it, gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. There was something about that event as they he taught them, and he shared with them, much like he did at the Last Supper, the bread and the wine. There's something going on there, and it looks like that's the first post-resurrection uh, Lord's Supper, you could say. And then, of course, the early church in Acts chapter 2, which we won't go back to now, but they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayer. They ate together in each in their homes. They broke bread in their homes. And uh, that could certainly mean eating, but it does seem that the connection with what's been going on with Jesus and the institution of the Lord's Supper seems to indicate that this is at least connected with that and they are taking communion together. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, a verse we looked at in one of the previous classes, on the first day of the week, we came together. Why? To break bread. Again, it seems more like a formal breaking of bread. Eating, very likely eating a meal together, but that phrase breaking bread seems to hark back to uh, the, uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table 
and the table of demons. So put that together with chapter 11, which we've mentioned already, and it seems that for Paul it was obvious uh, that they took the Lord's Supper regularly when they gathered, presumably on that first day of the week, the Sunday. Paul wasn't correcting them uh, from dealing with uh, or had taken the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. He was correcting the way in which they did it. There's an assumption. So what can we be reasonably confident about, about how the Lord's Supper was uh, the approach to the Lord's Supper in the uh, first century, firstly, it does seem to have been regular. It's assumed by Paul that it's part of their regular assemblies. It seems to be regular. It seems to be on the first day of the week. Secondly, it is very important. It's instituted by Jesus and Paul corrects their behavior in First Corinthians because it's so significant. He wouldn't have bothered if it wasn't important. Thirdly, it does seem like it's okay for non-members to be present. The uh, context of First Corinthians appears to be their gatherings when they come together. And in first, the other corrections that Paul gives them about the way that they speak in tongues uh, all over each other and the other things that are going wrong are in the context of non-believers being present in 1 Corinthians 14. So it looks like yeah, it's OK for non-believers to be there. We don't have any information about children and uh, whether they should be, be present or not. We don't know. And certainly we do not have anything like a formula. Uh, if we needed a formula, well, God would have given it to us, but there's no formula. doesn't mean there aren't guidelines and some really helpful um, uh, examples and so on, but it, there's no formula as such. So let me go on to what I consider to be, well, I hope, a few helpful thoughts to be considering as we think about our practice of the Lord's Supper in our gatherings. Firstly, let's think about the difference between an altar and a table. An altar and a table. See, here there is a continuity and a contrast between the Old and New Covenants. In the Old Covenant, there was an altar which was also a table. In the New Covenant, there is an altar, but it's different from the table. Significant. So, in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verses 6 and 7, uh, God tells the Israelites to build an altar with stones and, and put burnt offerings on it uh, to the Lord your God. And he says, sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. So you have an altar, but it's also a table. It's where you eat in the presence of the Lord your God. So the reason why God gave them an altar, at least in part, was so that he could eat together with his people. This is what God has always wanted, like from the days of Eden. He wanted to walk around the garden with Adam and Eve and enjoy unbroken uh, fellowship. And, and, and maybe they ate together in Eden. We don't know Adam and Eve and God, but there's that sense of intimacy. And it's not much in our lives when we're with friends uh, that's great, of greater intimacy than eating together. So we see that that's what God wanted. Altar was a table eating together at a fellowship offering. So God's eating with his people around the altar table and the Israelites ate at those fellowship offerings. So there were different festivals and sacrifices in the old covenant. There were sin um, offerings, there were thanksgiving offerings and there were fellowship offerings. And the fellowship offerings, when they happened, that was the only one of those sacrifices where the worshippers ate. At the others, the priests might eat, but you didn't get to eat. But at the fellowship offering, you got to eat too. Uh, for example, Deuteronomy 12, verse 27. Present your burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord your God, both the meat and the blood. The blood of your sacrifices must be poured out beside the altar of the Lord your God, but you may eat the meat. It's like God saying, you know what? I want to fellowship with you. We're going to eat together. I appreciate your sacrifice. Burn some of it. But you and I can eat together around this altar table. And what's going on in these meals, in a sense, is not only that fellowship with God, but also a covenant renewal. You'll know that when the sacrifices 
were not made appropriately in the Old Covenant, when people took them lightly or didn't offer the correct kind of sacrifices or they came with sin in their heart, God was not pleased because it was violating the covenant. That intimacy of the altar table was being violated because his people were coming with false motives, with a false heart. What's it like if you try and eat together with someone who's a hypocrite towards you, doesn't really like you, doesn't really love you, they're just turning up out of a sense of duty? That's not the kind of table fellowship you and I really enjoy. And so what's happening here is these these festivals are designed to be a covenant renewal of joy, especially these ones we're talking about where they where God and his people eat together. And we see some of this reflected in the way that Paul deals with the situation in Corinth, the first Corinthians 10 and 11. And I'll leave you to study that through to get your own convictions on all of that. So what is Jesus doing? What Jesus is doing is he's bringing us into the same kind of fellowship, or even deeper, more intimate fellowship with God at this Lord's table, supper table, but it's not an altar. There's no altar now. There's only a table. Well, there is an altar, but the altar is the cross. It's there. It's done. There's no altar for you and I to sacrifice on in the same way these days as the old covenant. Instead, there's a table to gather around. The sacrifice has been made, has been done. It's on the cross. We gather round the table. An altar needs a priest, but a table needs a host. We don't need priests. We need hosts. And so then we eat together at the Lord's Supper. We feed together with one another and we feed with and on Christ when we do this. The emphasis, therefore, of the Lord's Supper is rejoicing over the fact that you and I are included in the Feast of Christ the King Messiah's Feast. We are allowed to be part of that great banquet. And the eating together around the Lord's table is a foreshadowing of the ultimate feast at the end of time, when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. The New Testament presents the Lord's Supper as a Thanksgiving and a fellowship event, not a sin event. Mark this. The Lord's Supper is not a sin event. It's a Thanksgiving and a fellowship event. It's the experience of communing together and with God, with Jesus. It's not the search for atonement. That's because the cross is done with. The cross is the one-time altar event, as far as you and I are concerned. And the irony, of one well, irony, if that's the right word, but one of the ironies is we don't need a priest now for this table. Jesus, our high priest, went to the cross and offered himself on the cross altar for us so that we could enjoy table fellowship with one another and with Jesus. The other thought I'd like to put in our minds is this. The Lord's Supper is fundamentally inclusive. Fundamentally inclusive. So think about this. Think about all the uh, the accounts of the Last Supper. Who was there? Who was there? A, a most surprising guest was there. Jesus is hosting his disciples, his followers, his best friends. If you're going to have your last meal ever on this earth, with your best friends. You're going to have your best friends there. Who are you not going to have there? You're not going to have there someone who's going to betray you. Why would you? Why did Jesus have Judas at the meal? I mean, it doesn't make any human sense, does it? And yet Jesus shares this most intimate of times and moments with his betrayer. He deliberately includes Judas. And I think there are several reasons for that, but at least one of them needs to be, one of them must be, to remind you and I to include the unhostable when we host the Lord's Supper. 
Those that others would exclude are welcome. We want them there. Those whose views we don't share, those whose beliefs we don't agree with, those who, who live different lifestyles, have different values from us. Perhaps even people, certainly we maybe don't like them, even find difficult to love. But you see, this is the way Jesus lived his whole life. Think about all the meals through the Gospels, a really useful Bible study, an uh, inspiring one is to look at the way that Jesus ate with people. There's a really good book by Conrad Genf on this, which I'll put in the show notes. Conrad Genf wrote a book called, I think, uh, The Mealtime Habits of the Messiah. Look through the life of Jesus and how he always seemed to be eating with the wrong people. He was eating with women, with the Gentiles, with sinners of all kinds, and the Pharisees were upset. In fact, he even ate with the Pharisees, which, of course, some other people thought was a bad thing to do as well. He's always eating with the wrong people, and he, he did that all of his life, and he didn't change at the end. At the end of his life, he's still eating with the wrong people, with Judas. And that fundamentally says that, to me, that when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he's certainly talking about the bread and the wine, taking that. But I wonder if he's also saying, do this in this kind of way. Bring everybody in. Bring in the normally unhostable. Bring in the ones you would not normally have on your guest list. There are parables about that in the Gospels. Make sure you bring others into this special table event. How are we doing at that? How are we doing at bringing in the sinners and the Gentiles and the equivalent of our day today to join us in this joyful mealtime together with one another and with God under Christ? So what is the Lord's Supper? It's a joyful occasion. It's not a somber one. It's not a sin event. It's not an atonement event. It is a celebration, fellowship, thanksgiving event. That's what it is makes me wonder whether we might have too much emphasis on the quiet and the somber and not enough, not, not enough emphasis on the joyful and the thanksgiving. So to wrap up, a few tentative suggestions and ponderings. Uh, again, not a formula and certainly not rules. But I wonder whether we want to think a bit more about avoiding too much sorrow, too much emphasis on well, any emphasis on guilt, uh, making our communions uh, meaty, not necessarily uh, long but but not perfunctory for sure and whether that time of reflection which is often tradition with us whether that time of reflection is utilized in the best way because that you that time of reflection should be a product able to produce at the very least thankfulness uh, rather than any sense of guilt i wonder whether we might need to ramp up our sense of celebration and thankfulness and communal joy as we perhaps eat together not just have some bread and some wine but have a meal together I wonder whether we need to not focus too much on the disputable variables, the length of the communion, the number of cups, the type of bread, the type of wine or juice, or how often we take uh, these emblems. Maybe that's not something we need to worry about. And perhaps in these areas which are at least disputable, we're talking about good, better and best. If we can figure out at least what's good, let's do that and not worry about all the uh, variables that the Bible doesn't lay down as being essential to what the Lord's Supper is really all about. So what do you think about all these ideas? What do you think about the altar and the table? What do you think about the thanksgiving, about eating together, about Jesus being our host who is present while we take the Lord's Supper? What do you think about it being a supper and not just some emblematic, emblematic bread and wine? What do you think about inviting in the Judases, those who are beyond the pale, generally speaking, in society, and especially perhaps even in the Christian world. Well, there's lots more that could be said. Lots I've left out, of course, regarding all this. But I hope this is enough to promote some helpful discussion in our groups and to rethink how we do the Lord's Supper, why we do the Lord's Supper, and what we're expecting God to do through 
the Lord's Supper. Have a good study of it. Have a good think about it. Especially look at 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 amongst other passages. Have a look at the Gospels. Have a look at the Last Supper accounts. And let me know if you have any questions. You can send me an email, malcolm at malcolmcox.org, and you'll find extra materials on my website as well. I hope this is helpful, and may God bless you and strengthen you when you take the Lord's Supper together with all your friends. Till the next time, take care, and God bless. <laughs>